Hello, Ian. How are you on this wonderful day? Stop being so happy. Why shouldn't I be happy? We're making the Urban Arena podcast about trying to create sustainable and just cities. And you think that is cause to be so sprightly? Is it not? I mean, didn't you ever stop to think about what's driving injustice and unsustainability? Well, of course, but that doesn't mean I can't greet you in a cheerful manner. Have you been thinking too much about the drivers of injustice? Actually, funny you should ask that, Kate, because I have. I'm not only thinking about it, but talking about it too. Have a listen to this. Alrighty, so here we are to have a conversation about drivers of uh, urban injustice. And with that in mind, I have three wonderful guests. So I'm wondering, could you first um, please all introduce yourself? Let's start at the top of my screen. So Panayota. Yes, I'm Panayota Kotsila. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at ICTA in the Autonoma, uh, Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona. And I'm working within the Urbana project and at the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability. Hi, good morning. Uh, I'm Isabel Angelovsky. I'm a colleague of Panagiota at uh, ICTA and the Barcelona Lab. Uh, my background is in urban studies and planning uh, with input from geography, sociology, and um, let's say a core interest in urban environmental justice um, issues. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jonathan. Uh, in the past year, I have written my master's thesis under the supervision of Panagiota and Isabel, and I have continued working with them as an intern for Urbana. Great. So we, uh, afterwards you can, uh, after they've left, we can have a session where you complain about your supervisors. Um, <laughs> but before we do that, we'll discuss, we'll discuss what we're going to be discussing here today. Um, I mean, most of the, the podcast series uh, and the wider project that it's part of has been looking quite often at um, maybe not necessarily solutions, but ideas or approaches of how people come to try and tackle issues of urban justice and, and sustainability about people who are trying you know interesting projects or ideas or have different conceptualizations about how we need to think about um the world and our cities um and then today we're talking about something which maybe might seem a little bit maybe negative or maybe even counterintuitive to some people because we're going to be talking about what causes um injustice so i'm wondering can somebody start by letting us know like, why do we need to focus on drivers of injustice when we're thinking about just and sustainable cities? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, one one thing is that um, that I've been noticing and that I think happens to a lot of people is when we ask people to think about justice, it turns into a pretty elusive concept. Um, you know, what is justice? It might be, um, it's also a very situated uh, understanding. They have a very situated understanding. People think, well, whatever is good for people should every people should have access to it and that's justice but then who do we imagine as people who enters in our in our um understanding of people in a city um and also what are these things that we assume people want or need um this is a very situated uh, understanding or um conceptualization of justice and many times it doesn't correspond it doesn't necessarily capture what justice is um for those people that might be facing difficulties in reaching their full potential or in, in living uh, fulfilling lives. So basically, I think uh, one reason to go and look at the drivers of injustice is um, because it allows us to understand better what is it that, um, what do we need to fix or mend 
in order for everybody to, um, to be able to live fulfilling lives in cities and in order for sustainability, so-called sustainability interventions to be part of this mending and also to not exacerbate or create new types of uh, inequalities that lead to injustice. I mean, going back also to our um, core core interest uh, as as researchers in critical social science, I would also say that injustice or justice is very much linked to to social inequality. And so, what looking at drivers of injustice helps us accomplish is really uh, disentangle what markers, what processes of social inequalities prevent people from uh, accessing new environmental amenities or sustainability type interventions like food cooperatives or um, new mobility systems like Panagiotta was was mentioning. So for instance, deep histories of of urban segregation and marginalization um, are part of those drivers of injustice. structural and individual racism, um, the role of cities now as drivers of capital accumulation through land values and through property acquisitions and, and, and the value captures from those properties. So all of those processes of social inequality creation in cities really are at the core of what prevent some groups those who don't have political power, social power of economic power from staying in neighborhoods or from moving to neighborhoods where many of those interventions of sustainability are taking place. And they try to take, they tend to take place in areas where uh, land is being revalued or where a neighborhood is being rebranded because that's where most profits can be made. Um, and where most let's say changing the image of a neighborhood can be really profitable also for um, for planners. And so that's really what we're trying to get at here. You know, what is from a core standpoint, the types of social inequalities people are confronted with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thanks. And I know uh, I want to ask you a little bit about, because um, you came up with, in, in doing some research, you came up with 10 different drivers of injustice. And I'm, I want you to ask, I want to ask a little bit about how you came up with these um, 10 drivers? Like what was the method behind the work you did? I know later on, we're going to speak with Jonathan, who did his master's thesis about this topic. And he's been sort of d- delving deeper into some of the same things. But first, let me talk about the the research behind these drivers of, uh, of these 10 drivers of injustice. So how did you get there? And what was the method? Yeah. Um, so we began as part of a process in the project of Urbana of identifying um, EU-funded projects that have focused their research on the topic of uh, sustainability and justice in cities. And from that wide, wider pool of about 350 projects that um, Urbana identified, we had a subset of about uh, 43 projects that are um, dealing with both the question of justice and sustainability. And so we went and looked at everything that these projects have produced from um, website pages, uh, policy reports, deliverables, academic articles, every, every kind, all the discourse, all the knowledge that has been produced and is still available online. And basically we compiled uh, this material and we, we analyzed it um, using a text-based analysis. We coded it. So we, we had a list of possible drivers, which was confirmed and adjusted um, according to what we found. And, and just for clarity, in case people might not get the word driver, by driver, what are you meaning there? Cause or something slightly different? 
Well, I mean, yes, cause, um, but it doesn't have to be a linear or um, cause-effect relationship in a very direct way. And also these 10 drivers of injustice, um, as we explain also in the in the materials that we've produced around around this uh, this analysis, the drivers of injustice are not are not exclusive of each other. Many times they're feed into each other. So one driver uh, might be material inequality, which is a core driver of injustice that might lead to another type of of um, condition, such as let's say I don't know exclusion from participatory processes, which in itself is another kind of driver of injustice. So these have to be. Um, understood and um, really seen working in conjunction, working together. So yes, there is a, a, a kind of a cause effect that if there is this type of uh, condition or process, there will be, we expect to see, and we have seen some sort of injustice happening, taking place, um, but it's not always, uh, you know, in time or scale or space, um, very directed relationship. Sometimes it goes through multiple steps for the type of injustice to be expressed. Um, now, as you mentioned, there's 10, and we're not going to go through them all because there's not time to go through them all, but I'm going to put a link on the website and in the show notes. But I want to talk about two of them in this podcast, uh, maybe unpick them a little bit and get some examples as well, because so far we've been talking, I guess, a little bit on an abstract level. So let's also think about some sort of examples by what we mean. And the two that I'd like to talk about, the first one is material and livelihood inequalities. And then I'd also like to talk about uh, uneven and exclusionary urban intensification and regeneration. So let's start with the first one. So what, what were you getting at when you said that a driver of injustice was material and livelihood inequalities? Right. So um, beginning, let's say, from what um, from ba basic inequalities that we see in cities as well as generally in societies, people um, have less access, have less resources or less access to resources that they need in order to uh, fulfill, you know, live a, a healthy, fulfilling life. Um, particularly in the context of urban sustainability, for example, we see that a lot of the neighborhoods that um, have better amenities, better quality, uh, less pollution, uh, more greening are the more affluent neighborhoods. So they're neighborhoods where people are of uh, upper class, higher income, higher education level, uh, predominantly white. So in, in contrast, people of color, uh, immigrants, people of lower income live in neighborhoods that have been historically neglected um, treated as, let's say, environmental dumps uh, in the sense of having a higher, more exposure to, to toxic materials, to waste, to air pollution, et cetera, et cetera. So this is kind of a baseline inequality that we see. Now, the driver of material and livelihood inequalities can impact on um, further processes of sustainability, right? So if we see, for example, schemes such as... Um, bike lanes, uh, bike lane installation or expansion in cities, and we see where do they, uh, where they are placed. That might be one way in which uh, material inequalities might express. So people of lower income uh, that live in neighborhoods that are further out of the center or that, you know, are not in, in, in core kind of business or um, education districts find themselves excluded from this sustainability uh, potential or amenity. So they, are, they don't have access to bike lanes or they don't have access to these kind of municipal bike um, schemes. And so in the end, you see that, you know, sustainability interventions do not reach all people in the same way. And that is underlined by, um, by class, by income level, by material inequality. I mean, bike lanes are 
particularly important, or let's say everything that has to do with sustainable mobility planning, which is so much talked about now in the COVID context, like how can we minimize um, dense urban environments where um, people commute and pass through during the day? And you take the example of um, the city of Barcelona, where we have increased the number of bike lanes, expanded the side of um, of sidewalks, given even new lanes for pedestrians or for scooters. But at the end of the day, residents who are able to use those new bike lanes tend to be those that um, depend on only short commute distances and um, are able to go very easily and in sports attire uh, or in let's say more loose clothes to their um, to their job but if you live in the periphery of a city where you have to live because income your income doesn't allow you to live closer to your job uh, and oftentimes uh, we're talking here about jobs in retail or in tourism or even in um, in support to um, to health dependent people then you cannot use those nice bike lanes uh, you are dependent on public transit. And so if you don't have dense, uh, affordable and, and reliable transit systems, then you are very much at risk of um, just contacting the infection way more. And then also arriving late at work and being fired with a much lower uh, welfare system of um, of support that actually will also be behind you in that context. So in that sense, you know, material inequality prevents you from using those nice mobility initiatives that um, that cities now have in place, unless you really live in the center and everything around you is this 15-minute city that so many municipalities are going for now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Egon Paniotra, I see you also want to jump back in. Yeah, no, this is, um, this is also making me think how, you know, this driver of material inequalities is um, also beyond direct access to a resource or an amenity or, a, or a, let's say, a good. But also, it de- defines how um, how much you can access processes, right? So a lot of times, if you uh, belong to a um, let's say immigrant community, um, you f- you're facing material inequalities, which then also put you in a position to not be able to participate in certain processes, let's say of decision making, of you know community consultations, etc. Um, on the one side, so then creating a different type of let's say obstacle to your um, to your benefit from sustainability interventions because you don't have the voice to you, your voice is not being heard in um, during the process of negotiation of implementation etc um, but also many times we see as in the I will mention the example of the liberties in Dublin a neighborhood um, in Dublin that had like a post-industrial neighborhood with um, predominantly lower income people but also heavily gentrified lately where we see that um, different kinds of sustainability intervention like community gardens are in great risk because the neighborhood has been um, has been made attractive to higher income groups you know entrepreneurs the the international students with um, the ability to pay higher rents and so because there is this push um, for for housing in Dublin, Dublin has been historic. Well, has been lately, I think, one of the most expensive cities to rent a flat to be able to live in. So there's this push for building high-rise apartments. There's a push for development for um, creating new housing, which means that things like community gardens that mean 
uh, a lot of things to people of lower income in certain neighborhoods, et cetera, like the liberties are being sacrificed in the name of um, urban regeneration or development, which is what we're going to talk about uh, next. So there's multiple aspects, you know, that's why I said that this is a core driver because it can really, you can really see it working um, in many different aspects of justice and sustainability in, in cities. Well, can I ask um, how, because we're both with the examples I was thinking, we're both bike lanes or bike sharing and also community gardens. And, and I can understand all the arguments you're making. I'm wondering, can, I, can we also maybe think a little bit about how, um, I'd say, the acceptance or the prevalence rather of, you know, like the, the usual thing that of caring about the environment or being interested in these things is very often expressed through middle class um um cultural practices as well i mean i mean and of course this changes from country to country but like riding a bike in budapest is very often more of a middle class thing rather than a working class thing partly because of the reason that isabel suggested but also simply it's just it's it's simply just a also a even from even from when people are teenagers or going into their 20s it's still just and they're not going to work if they're just going out to like out to the pub or like going out on the week or like going somewhere on the weekend like to a park or whatever to meet their friends it's still more of a middle class thing to be on a bike than uh, than not um and and i'm just wondering like how then do uh i guess um class-based cultures if you like uh, how do they feed into um accessing to um yeah sustainability initiatives um thinking about this question of material inequalities i agree with what you say on the one hand because it is the um, it is the practices of the tech workers the creative class the young people who tend to be um, privileged or who tend to be taken into consideration when planning those new uh, infrastructure or even when preserving community gardens. But on the other hand, it's not because uh, the other types of groups are not doing it. It's because they are not recognized for what uh, their practices have been. So there's a really interesting concept in the U.S., which is about um, bike lanes being white lanes through black um, neighborhoods. And basically that's, I think, what we're seeing as a pushback, which is, well, you didn't care about us um, in New Orleans or in Portland in particular, uh, or in Cleveland 10, 15 years ago, when we bike people were biking through unsafe streets. But now that X or Y neighborhood um, is being... Um, is being gentrified and is being revitalized. For instance, Albina in um, in Portland. Uh, well, now you care about it, and you are going to um, to create those safe bike infrastructure for white people. Um, and I think that's really the pushback. Or if you take the example of the Lafitte Greenway in New Orleans, which is a beautiful kind of green corridor of resilience infrastructure against flooding, has playgrounds, has gardens, and has bike lanes. Again, it is within a, a broader planning uh, project, which is about climate adaptation to flooding in New Orleans and um, increasing property values in those areas. And so uh, these this whole greenway is assorted with high-end condos being built around them. And all of the bike lanes are passing through um, black neighborhoods like Treme. So of course, residents are just like, you're not doing it for us. You are, you are doing it for others. But we were there before and we used those bike lanes. We used uh, biking before, but in much more precarious conditions. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go on, Pani, I see you also want to come in. Yeah, no, I was thinking also that beyond that, uh, sometimes I think, you know, we're kind of reproducing this um, coloniality of what can be sustainability, right? Like, why is riding a bicycle the dominant expression of sustainability in, in cities? Why can't we see at the waste pickers that are predominantly people of color uh, and many times immigrants that go and actually, uh, you know, perform and, and practice, uh, you know, the mantra of environmentalism, reuse, recycle, etc. But they're not being recognized. Their work is not being protected. They don't have any kind of social security, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So maybe we need to also broaden our perspective on what is sustainability practice in cities. Yeah, yeah, I have a, I have a good example of that because the why I was thinking about this, the street where I live, when I first moved there, it used to have benches and put out some flowers. But there was also a couple of homeless shelters close by, and it's quite a wide street and a big street. So often, um, um, local homeless people would sleep on on those benches. So local shop owners complained to the local city council and said, "Get rid of the benches because I don't want homeless people sleeping in front of my shop." They got rid of the benches, got rid of the, basically the area for inhabiting the public space. And I've lived there since two thousand and. Yeah, eight. So obviously it's been quite a while and things have started to change. And um, there are still homeless shelters there, but slowly, you know, the usual story of gentrification is taking place. And the last um, the last local government that was in power, they beautified all of the local parks uh, in many ways and in some ways, interesting ways. Um, but at the same time, they criminalized, but I was on a, on a wider level, so it wasn't a local government, but criminalized um, activity, uh, criminalized homelessness to, to a large degree, including um dumpster diving as you would say in, a, in an american way like going through rubbish bins and what the homeless population do in budapest is they go around the the, the dust bins they're not looking for food they're actually looking for things they can sell in a recycling plant so like glass and, and metal and, and so on and this and this and this was criminalized but as you, as you point out this is actually really you know the most the most dedicated hardcore environmental practice to go through other people's shit they've thrown out and actually find value and worth in there and make sure it doesn't end up in a, in a rubbish dump but this was never this would never be framed as an environmental activity uh, it would always be framed as basically a you know a, either a, a either coming from poverty or being criminal as well so um yeah exactly this reframing of what we think of as a as a as a just or sustainable or sorry exactly reframing what we think about being environmental practices is, is very much based on these class issues as as well. But let's uh, let's move on to the second driver before we get too bogged down with my musings, uh, which is uneven and exclusionary urban intensification and, ge- and regeneration. So, I mean, somebody might be, first of all, saying, wait, wait a minute, urban regeneration, that's, that's, that's a driver of inequality? What's going on there? Yeah, I think it's always a big um, puzzling and pausing so what are we talking about here? We're talking about, generally speaking, municipality-led reinvestment programs in neighborhoods that um, have had a lot of vacant land, um, decaying industries, poor housing stock, uh, low access to the center of the city and to, to just connections. Um, poor food choices. So it's a kind of a whole package of measures uh, driven by an urban municipal plan and often associated via public-private partnerships or only speaking private investment via the transformation of these old decaying stock into um, high-end housing. And of course, also the addition of in general um, higher-end housing uh, within vacant land. And 
we talk about it very much within the context of sustainability because over the last 15 years, a lot of this urban regeneration has been associated with environmental amenities. So we're talking here about new parks and public spaces, all these bike lanes we were talking about, new transit um, transit lines, what is named as transit-oriented development, TOD. Uh, we're talking about uh, maybe new markets or new food co-ops going coming in, and even the wider cleanup of um, of derelict waterfronts, for instance. So it's really a big package of of measures. But the problem is, in order to make this area profitable, there is very much an appropriation of the land value that was unused before. So what some geographers like Neil Smith have called the rand gap. And in order to fill that rent gap and to transform it into value, you need to capture value and transform an area that was not profitable from a, a property tax standpoint or um, rent or even sale prices of homes into area of higher value. So that's why you rebrand the neighborhood as both green uh, and livable for higher class. And you have all of these real estate developments around um, those amenities that are meant to be for um, higher income residents, residents with higher purchasing power. And unless you have very stringent affordable housing policies and uh, a long existing housing stock that's being maintained, kept up over time, then you have processes of gentrification and displacement that unfortunately very quickly accompany these urban uh, revitalization. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess I guess the question you're asked a lot then if you're thinking about these things is, so then, uh, and maybe this is not completely fair because you're looking at drivers of injustice rather than uh, coming up with, I say, policy suggestions or solutions is, so what should we, what should we do? Should we not regenerate an area? What do you, how do you respond to that? I mean, you have different cities that take very different um, approaches and you also have a deeper um social state or, or a welfare system that exists in some countries or some cities that will protect against those evictions and displacement. In a very rampant capitalist context like the US, you're very, very, you have very few um, margins of action uh, unless you actually really have these very radical housing uh, organizations making a big push for changing policies at the municipal level. But in general, it's very difficult because in the US, municipalities depend on property taxes for so much of their budget, like schools, uh, firefighters, nurses, et cetera, public nurses. So of course, at the end, they feel very trapped, especially so in the context of very neoliberal policymaking at the federal level where cities have been strapped of their um, funding. So anyway, you have these very radical housing groups that are pushing for um, rent control, for instance, that exists now at the state level um, in, in Washington, which is the state uh, where Seattle is based. You have tenant protection acts like you have them um, in Boston with anti-eviction clause or just eviction clause. Well, that's still being discussed in Congress. You have policies like in Washington, D.C. that is called the Right to Purchase Act, where African-Americans are being, um, in general, are tend to be the renters in the rental market of DC. And when condos are being flipped into um, for sale properties, they are the ones who have the first right to purchase. So that kind of gives them a sense of security. And then you have many other cities that tend to be in Europe where when developers have to redevelop an area or bid 
for, um, let's say, building 200 units, they have to comply with very stringent um, building norms. So, for instance, in Nantes, for every 100 units of new housing being built, 56 of those units, so more than the majority, have to be either social or public housing. That's really huge if you compare it with the U.S., where the inclusionary zoning clauses tend to be 10 to 12 percent only of every um, block of housing being dedicated to, to affordable. It's it's very big difference. Or in Vienna, you have a lot of decommodified housing that's being protected. So I think those are more promising approaches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Brilliant, thank you. I want to um, now maybe shift back sort of circle the conversation round to what we started talking about which was where you came from when it came to coming up with these drivers of injustice and of course as you said a lot of this was informed by work you've done outside the context of actually looking at eu funded projects but um and maybe this is also a good time then to to bring jonathan in because i know jonathan spent quite a lot of time really deep diving into the the project documentation and other and other outputs from eu funded projects so i'm wondering like you know so the eu spends a lot of money each year you know sort of putting out calls for tenders for people to come up with projects um, that solve certain societal issues. And those are decided upon at a very high level and they trickle down and people spend large uh, parts of their lives putting together grants and consortiums to to try and tackle these. So when it comes to questions of um, justice and sustainability, I'm wondering like, so Jonathan, how are they usually, you know, expressed in EU documents, uh, EU project documents, I mean, the projects that are trying to um, tackle these issues? Well, I think it's one of the interesting, fi- most interesting findings is that in, 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 in the whole data set of all the European projects that I, I, I um, was, looking, was looking at and uh, delving into, justice is most often um, equated with uh, participatory practices. Um, and it is talked about in a way that justice is equal to participation or it is signified by ideas of participation and inclusion, which is very good because participation, of course, is uh, closely connected to, okay, can we include as many different stakeholders? Can we include, indeed, like we said in the beginning, um, vulnerable communities in in neighborhoods? And can we um, include people in decision-making, but also in the design of, of sustainability interventions? But then, on the other hand, it, it creates a very own, quite a narrow mindset of what justice is, which is participation and other types of justice. Can we talk about distributive justice? Can we talk about intersectionality or about uh, epistemic types of justice? I mean, these are topics that, that are very important to think about. But when you only think about participation and only think about inclusion, um, then a lot of new possibilities or possibilities as to how to engage differently with these topics, uh, they become obscured and marginalized. Mm-hmm. That's 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 great. Thank you. I mean, it's super interesting, I think, and anyone, please feel free to join in or also, Jonathan, it's super interesting sort of the life of concepts, I think. Once concepts reach a certain level of bureaucratization, um, they, they, they take on a life of their own, or maybe even not even a life of their own, a death of their own, because they're basically killed of critical potential they're killed of meaning and they basically very very quickly you can see you know an idea from which you know people have really thought about something 
doing research, doing serious scholarship, doing serious work in communities, push hard for an idea. Within a few years, it's boom, it's gone everywhere. It's used all over the European Union and elsewhere, and it's used in documents, and and it's lost its, it's almost lost its meaning, like <laughs> because because it's just replaced the, it's just replaced whatever whatever the the trendy word is that that came before. Yeah, go on, Paniota. Yes, I mean, I just wanted to add here that um, it's interesting also to see how, um, well, first of all, to see how the different outputs of projects um, engage differently with the concept of justice. Always we talk about projects that have looked at justice and sustainability. And I think that's also important to see, you know, to what extent are people that are interested in sustainability, to what extent do they engage with social justice? Um, because there's also a great variety of projects that are only looking at social justice, but not environmentalism or sustainability, right? So in this context, uh, the different outputs that we saw that um, Jonathan looked into, um, we saw that when researchers are more free to kind of frame their own questions and uh, apply their own uh, thinking in um, more academic types of outputs that also take longer to produce and need more um, kind of require more time, more focus, more energy, uh, there you see more critical thinking on justice in relation to sustainability. But when it comes to things like um, deliverables or uh, policy recommendations, all in the framework of these like mostly big consortium projects that involve a lot of different researchers from a lot of different disciplines, um, we see that kind of dilution of what could justice mean or how much do we delve into the drivers of injustice in cities. And I think this is also part of what we as academics and researchers are required to do, the timeframes that we're required to work in, you know, the, the, the fact that we depend on EU funding for our survival in universities many times. So all this we need to take into account also not to kind of uh, point the fingers uh, to researchers or to people who are in these projects that, oh, you know, you're not you're not critical enough. But people are critical, but maybe it's very hard to uh, to express radical opinions or to have the time to really think deeply with concepts uh, when you're working in the framework of competitive and 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 short-term uh, European projects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's something really about the logic of project projects and i'll keep wanting to say ization the logic of projectization uh today that you that, that we all that we all feel which is somehow really really limiting what we can do um but uh, that's that's it we have to have a we have to have a project and you have to look at something and you have to solve it or you have to come to a conclusion and then you have to write it in a report so that you get funding next time there's no space there for saying you know what um actually what we found out was um actually not particularly great and you know our methods didn't really work very well and the project didn't work very well but anyway thanks for the money can i have some more um that's just like not it's not gonna it's just not gonna work so uh so i guess that's i was also wondering a little bit about the yeah i guess the 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 methods i guess if you look at project documentation like how much how much can you really trust what's there right uh, in terms of like an expression of what actually went on inside a project i know working in a in a quite different field sometimes in terms of opening up access to education we have to present one story to the university management or to funders about what we do so that we can extract resources from them basically we see it as a resource extraction process and then uh, to actually use it for actually something which is genuinely more meaningful so it might not be quite as negative as it seems in the documents right there might be people doing super interesting work under the guise of project project documentation. No, I think these are all really important points. And uh, um, I think Jonathan's thesis, and he can talk more about it and make a very short point, also made a really interesting um, 
finding related to individual projects or projects where uh, you're not responding to a call and those that are part of consortium. So maybe I'll let Jonathan talk about it. The only other just very brief complementary point I wanted to add is related to how easy it is to tackle issues of participation. It seems that actually you include a few minorities, you include a few women there, you have a, a focus group or you have a workshop and you have fulfilled your um, inclusionary uh, goals. And that's way easier, at least on paper, to share or as an event to organize than to start saying capitalism is a problem, exploitation of racial minorities is the problem, and that's why they cannot access uh, food co-ops uh, within you know, big consortiums where people all have different backgrounds. Some can be radical and some can be almost, you know, right wing because they come from other um, schools of thoughts or, you know, we have economists, we have people from business schools in projects. I mean, there's no way they want to talk about um, capitalism being uh, capital accumulation being the source of a problem. So participation is kind of where you don't find too many conflicts within consortiums. And on top of it, you also do not conflict yourself too much with the EU. Like you said as well, Isabel, the, the, it was very interesting to see that it is indeed the consortium projects that struggle to engage in a um, systematic way with these ideas of justice, as opposed to the individual grants. And like Panajota uh, as well said, I think it has a lot to do with the logic of how these projects operate, which is um, on this call-based structure. And the pressure is just extremely high, not only to uh, actually work in the project, but also to get the grants in the first place um, under FP7, uh, the previous uh, funding scheme of the European Union, there was uh, only 16% 16, 16 of the projects got accepted. Uh, and under Horizon 2020, it was a bit higher. So there is this drive to deliver results. And then going back to your other point, Isabel, um, then participation is something that seems easier. You ha it is a very tangible way to engage with justice and a very practical way to engage with just, oh, we just invite these stakeholders, we just invite these residents, we just invite these people. That is a natural thing to do when you are under so, so much pressure. So it's, uh, again, what Panajota said, it's not about pointing fingers, but it's, it's just this, this whole structure of giving funding that creates this dynamic in which also the, the more critical engagements with these topics, they just get buried under so much bureaucratization. <laughs> if you will. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'd like to thank everyone uh, for this discussion. I think it's like been super interesting, like as usual with these things, like more questions than answers. But I think it's actually also really good, um, especially all of us now who are involved either as academics or as um, practitioners or as activists or whatever. We're, we've increasingly pulled into these um this world of 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 projects uh, and so and like and, and negotiating projects has become really a, a skill of life so i and i think it's it's one where we have to we can't just be completely um uncritical and naive about it and because for all the reasons we spoke about but at the same time is also we can't just reject it all because uh because unfortunately we need we we can find good and we do need and like exactly with the with the with the with these 10 drivers that you um came up with from the project documentation you can find that actually being involved and looking through projects you can actually find interesting stuff there as well okay well that leaves me with nothing more to do apart from to say thank you for everyone for all of your contributions today so bye thanks for having us bye bye
All righty. So, um, yeah, so Kate, you had a listen there to myself having a chat with Jonathan, Isabel, and Paniotta. Uh, what did you think was some of the interesting things that came out of that discussion? Yeah, well, first off, I love that we discussed um, looking at drivers of injustice because I think Isabel mentioned this, but, you know, it helps us kind of disentangle what processes of social inequality hold people back in accessing certain things like she was mentioning, food cooperatives or affordable housing, things like that. So definitely a worthwhile discussion to have. I think one of the things that I was particularly interested in when you were discussing it was kind of this idea that when you think about sustainability, you just think still of like middle class white activities. So whether that's like going on biking trips or farming your vegetables in your local community garden, like it's still such a middle class white thing. Um, And I was thinking about this and kind of like why that's necessarily the case and kind of was pondering whether it's because sustainability is still kind of positioned around this idea of choice. If you have the choice to recycle, the choice to buy a hybrid car, the choice to go on a bike trip, then you'll do it. And then that's considered sustainability. But if it's a necessity, if you're dumpster diving, because, you know, that is a sustainable thing to do, but also you're doing it out of necessity, then you're just doing it to cut costs. And so kind of that dichotomy was super interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's a really brilliant point. And it it speaks to, I guess it speaks to the class blindness uh, of a lot of the discourse around sustainability, uh, but also, I guess, the whole, um, I guess, maybe even like a wider thing, the elevation of choice and the morality around choice and the performance of the choices that we make as to being like one of the sort of key um almost identifiers of what sort of character we are in in, in the current world today. I mean, like, Mm. we have so much choice with everything that we never used to have in the past, you know? Like, um, I mean, not only what we consume, but what school we send our kids to or, you know, what type of... um, Christmas tree we buy if it's you know an eco-friendly one or these sorts of things so I mean I don't know like everything is everything I and mean, choice is everywhere and there's so much morality around that and I think it's infused uh, when it comes to these things around sustainability with this very with this class discourse as well you know like uh, and, and performing I think performing your good sustainability um, character is also a, a marker of being of a certain class very often as well. So I think I say it's a really good point, the difference between need and choice when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to um, the idea of what's sustainable. Absolutely. And I think, like, again, it's a social marker and, it, and it's a, it's a, again, you're performing to everyone else saying, I am sustainable. I am you know, upper middle class, I can take the extra 30 minutes to recycle my, my, my plastic and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually thinking about that in, um, in relation to something else. It's like, but when you look at, um, the biggest polluters in the world, you know, something like the top, and now I'm just going to do that silly thing whilst I'm being recorded on a podcast of like saying a statistic, which I can't remember the actual source for or the actual number. This is why we have show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you know what? I'm just going to say it. You know, it's something like a very, very small percentage of people create like the sort of the real planet damaging pollution that affects everybody else. So like, so actually, you know, even like, you know, middle class people, you know, spending the extra time to to cycle to the organic, you know, cooperative to buy their food actually makes such a tiny, small 
uh, dint in the actual overall, you know, um, saving of our planet. Actually, you know, maybe and this is maybe the problem with the sort of class blindness of you know environmentalism and sustainability movements that they'd actually be better spent building you know um, some sort of class war to wipe out the upper echelons of society who are causing the biggest you know the biggest uh, amount of, who do who are the biggest pollutants you know the top one or two percent of people in the world richest people in the world are the biggest pollutants so it's actually it is very much a class issue as much as it is a um, anything else although i will say i think like again unfortunately like the the middle class upper middle class those are the people in power or in traditionally powerful seats and so like what they do is what other people also look at so i think like the flip side of that is these types of people who are in powerful positions they like have a responsibility to signal sustainability now of course you know if they are polluting insane amounts but then are cycling to work Obviously, that's not positively signaling, but like I think there is like a responsibility that they have because they're in these positions of power. Hmm. Maybe we should speak to a powerful person on a future podcast. <laughs> Maybe next time around, <laughs> next <laughs> month. Do you know any? Do you know any powerful people, Kate? You're a quite powerful person. You're the host of a podcast. Well, we're, we're co-hosts of a podcast, Kate. <laughs> um, Alrighty. Okay, so okay, if people wanna get in touch with us, how do they get how do they find out where our contact details are? They look at the show notes. Yes. Um our emails and our Instagram handles are all below. So please get in touch with us. We wanna hear from you. We wanna hear your thoughts and your disagreements and your agreements. Yes, yes, we do. Alrighty, that's it for us for another month. Uh, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>